Our Father, we again are thankful that you are sovereign, that you work all things after the counsel of your will. We ask tonight that your Holy Spirit help us to comprehend the incomprehensible, the aspects of your being in the very heart of the triune nature that you have revealed to us. Help us to connect this with, uh, as a presupposition for the rest of our world and life view that we have because of the authority of Scripture. We also would ask, Father, for special wisdom on the part of our national leaders and pray particularly for those in the service who are being asked to go into a vague situation, a vague mission, um, with uh, less than clear purpose. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, tonight we'll try to make the best of things here. Um, actually, if I thought about it, we probably sh- could have gone down... Well, we don't have sound capability down in the classrooms, do we? Oh, we do? That's all we should have done, I guess. I, didn't, I should have thought of that last week. Um, okay, we're, what we're going to do tonight is to um, go through the doctrine of the Trinity um, and look at these five propositions because the Trinity is, uh, is ultimately incomprehensible, but that very incomprehensibility um, is, is important to notice. Um, and I think maybe the best way of, of dealing with these five propositions is to go over to Isaiah, because Isaiah um, was the passage we went through back three or four years ago when we started with creation, and we got onto the attributes of God. And we dealt with this issue of God being incomprehensible. And we defined that word to distinguish it from another word called unknowable. We are not saying God is unknowable. Be careful. What we are saying is that he is knowable, but he is incomprehensible, meaning we can only know him partially. We can only know him as a finite creature. We can't, uh, as finite creatures, we're limited, we're finite. And so therefore, we can know God. The Bible clearly says that. But the Bible also says uh, we do not comprehend him. Uh, this is, sounds like hair splitting, but let me try to show you why this is so important because these two words, knowing him and yet not comprehending him, set up the presupposition for our whole faith structure. It's right here where logic is revamped in Scripture. And you might have um, thought, as many of us do growing up, that logic is neutral. Um, that things like mathematics uh, is neutral. Uh, mathematics is not philosophically neutral. And if you think about it for a while, as I said three or four years ago, um, we have something in math that we call the irrational numbers. And there's a very good reason why these numbers are called irrationals. Um, remember, we had rational numbers, we had integers, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and we have rational numbers that are uh, divisions, fractions of integers. And we call those rational numbers. Then we have weird things that are irrational numbers, continuing decimals that never end. And the irrational numbers were called irrational because the Greeks realized that you can't comprehend them. And that's why they call irrational. But we just, you know, it's put on the blackboard and learn the lesson for the day and let's go on to the next lesson. Nobody ever stops and says, whoa, what is happening here? because we're trying to learn too much, too fast, and zip on over the key issues. 
So we've all learned this in arithmetic and algebra. It went right by us, never even stopped to think about what we were doing. The Greeks opposed the existence of irrational numbers. There are mathematicians today that deny their existence, that they do not exist. And this may sound funny, but the point is that no computer can comprehend an irrational number. No matter how powerful your computer, no matter how many digits it has, no computer has ever computed with an irrational number. Never. A computer always, comp always computes with rational numbers, never irrationals. So, all the wonders in our society today that we see are numbers that are only part of the number system that's there. And so, we have, right in the, in the very nature of arithmetic, we have, have something that we need to pause and think about. Because people come into this thing and they like to, like to say, well, I don't believe in God because it's very rational, and so forth. And yet, we all somehow believe in these irrational numbers that no computer can comprehend, never has and never can, you can prove the theorem, that no computer ever can comprehend an irrational. So, we, we, when we come to the Trinity then and we talk about the fact that God can be known, but he cannot be comprehended, let's sit back and think about our own number system. We really don't comprehend irrational numbers. They're just limits, and nobody knows whether they exist or they don't. They're just a concept. That's all they are. Another example of this is uh, oftentimes when, um, uh, if you've worked with algebra and uh, you've worked with a triangle, right triangle, and you have to you try to solve for, uh, you get two sides of the triangle, use Pythagoras' theorem, try to solve for the third side, it's because it's a quadratic equation, comes out with two roots, one of which is a negative root, negative number. But if you're, if you're solving a problem that involves speeds and velocities, uh, what's a negative velocity? Uh, I don't mean negative in the coordinates. I mean a negative speed. What's that mean? It doesn't mean anything. And it mean, what it's essentially telling us that our mathematics, the whole mathematical system that we use every day, does not totally correspond with what the real world around us. Math does not totally correspond to physical reality. And that's why in scientific theories and modeling, you only use pieces of math. You do not use the full system. Never can, you can't do that. You can use fragments of math to describe certain things in the real world. And that's all you can use. Because the real world defies you to explain it inside a mathematical system. Well, theology is much the same way. We can use our logic in limited ways. So we use logical fragments to describe theology and particularly come to God. So where we want to look tonight is over in Isaiah because these passages in the, in the chapter 40 and following it's a very important part of the Old Testament because remember Isaiah was a prophet. Remember he wrote prior to what big event that ended Israel's existence in the Old Testament. Remember? Old Testament, we had the rise of the kingdom, had the decline of the kingdom, and then we had exile. And at the exile, both the north and the southern kingdoms failed. The prophets were writing to prepare the population for what was going to happen in the exile. And they had to deal, they knew they were going to be living in a pagan environment. So Isaiah chapter 40, 41, 42, 43, 44 is a central, central Old Testament scripture that was given to Isaiah to give to the believers of his day in order to give them tools to live in a pagan culture. 
So, in Isaiah chapter 40, there's a number of questions. It's just sort of like the book of Job. And God, once again, is the interrogator and man is the one who's called on the carpet to answer. In verse 12 of Isaiah chapter 40, note these, um, note these questions. And try to look at them as we, we do today in our modern kind of thinking. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? and marked off the heavens by the span, and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, and weighed the mountains in a balance, and the hills in a pair of scales. Now, that's an obvious challenge to knowledge of the physical world. And the challenge in verse 12 is to have a comprehensive, empirical database. And God is saying, show me you. Show me your database. Go ahead. It's a challenge for man in his measurements. All those clauses there are talking about measurements. You see, the point is that you never can measure something perfectly. No such thing. You can measure it with a degree of precision, but then there's the philosophical problem of after you, you know, it's the saying we often use in testing is that you know what time it is until you have two watches. And now, which one's the right one? Um, So, the problem is not just saying that somebody can't estimate uh, the weight of the mountain. That's not the point of the question here. The point of the question is to have a comprehensive and complete knowledge of all measured entities. That's what the challenge is for. Now, in verse 13, the challenge goes deeper. And this, by the way, you will recognize is quoted in the New Testament. Anybody know where? It's quoted in Corinthians. And it's interesting that Corinthians were what culture? Greeks. Corinth was near what city in the ancient world? Center of the intellectual world, the northern side of the Mediterranean Sea, Athens. So Corinth was infected with philosophic issues. And Paul there made the issue the case that revelation, our presupposition as Christians, that our, our base of our faith is revelation, not reason. So, in verse, verse 12, Isaiah's gone on. Verse 13, Isaiah presents material that Paul later uses to disarm the rationality of the unbeliever. So, he says, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? And what he's saying in verse 13 is, uh, on the surface, I mean, it's obvious what he's saying on the surface, it's, He's saying, the Lord has never learned anything. God's knowledge is not that which is a result of learning. That's an interesting statement. Let's push it a little bit further. See if we can draw out implications of this. If God has never acquired his knowledge through learning, what does that tell you about his knowledge via our knowledge? All of our knowledge is from learning. None of his knowledge is from learning. So a qualitative distinction is being made between God's knowledge and man's knowledge. This is another manifestation of what have we repeated ad nauseum, the creator-creature distinction. Here's the creator-creature distinction showing up in the area of knowledge. And it's a failure to understand and appreciate the creator-creature distinction in knowledge that is the root of all of the assaults upon the Christian faith, and it's also the key to a viable, powerful apologetic 
for the Christian faith over against unbelief. What unbelief tries to do is say that there is only one level or kind of knowledge. One, one kind of knowledge. And what unbelief tries to argue, the pagan mind tries to argue that there's only a difference in quantity. In other words, the high IQ person knows more than, say, the low IQ, although that's questionable at times. Um, but it's, it's always an argument that the gods up on Mount Olympus, they, they know more than we do. But their knowledge is just our knowledge expanded. Sort of like Mormonism. As God uh, is, man one day shall be. There's just a, a, a shade of difference here. Just a quantitative difference. No qualitative creative creature distinction. And what verse 13 is telling us is that that's, that's wrong. That's a false view of knowledge itself. There is not one level of knowledge where we're all separated quantitatively. What this verse is saying is there are two kinds of knowledge. There is the omniscience of God that we cannot share. And then there's our knowledge. Our knowledge is learned knowledge. Omniscience is not learned knowledge. The nearest thing that we can probably, that's analogous in our brains to God's omniscience is intuition. It comes. It just is there. God thinks. But he doesn't learn anything. He doesn't, he's not dependent upon revelation. He's not, uh, he's not acquiring new information. God is self-contained, is another thing. Or we have used the word way back when we started the creative creature distinction back in Genesis 1, we used the word aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. God's aseity. And what do we mean by that noun, aseity? Aseity means that God is totally self-contained, totally and absolutely independent. He does not need the creation around. He does not need the universe. He doesn't have to lean on the universe to gain anything. Uh, he does not need to learn anything. God is a self-contained God. Now, why do we say that? Why is that an important statement to make in our time? Because liberal theology, that nine out of ten pastors out there, are taught this way in, in liberal seminaries. That is, that God develops with history. Yes, they do believe that. They believe in what's called process theology, that God is expanding his awareness as history marches on because he's part of the universe. Satan's the pantheism again. So God is expanding his knowledge. The Bible asserts that God is self-contained, meaning he doesn't grow. Meaning, therefore, God does not. It's exactly the opposite. God does not grow with history. The creation grows in a glorification of him, but God doesn't. God is a self-contained, his aseity means he is totally and absolutely independent. Now, it's important we understand that because what is sin at its heart? It's us trying to gain aseity. And see, that's the perversion. That is the satanic nature of sin. It's not necessarily murder, adultery, uh, stealing, the things that we think of. I mean, they're sin. But behind that is a spirit that really and literally wants to be like God. And what is it that we like to be like God? We like to be totally, completely self-contained and independent. And that's sin. And it's sin because we want to be what God is and God alone can be that way. 
All right, now having said that, let's march on here. Verse 14, with whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge? Now notice the two nouns in verse 14. The, uh, in, the, in the end of that clause, in the, in the predicate of that clause in verse 14, two nouns, justice and knowledge. Now that is saying that God is self-contained ethically and God is self-contained epistemologically or in his knowledge. He does not require and has no outside standard. Now verses 13 and 14, what I'm, what I'm pushing for here is an awareness that there's not a yardstick over and above God that's somehow there. The raw, bare, naked concept of justice. And then, that's the backdrop. And God we see against the backdrop and we say, oh, God is just. God is righteous. Because we have this concept, this abstract concept in back here of what righteousness and justice looks like and we're classifying God as fitting in that classification. This passage, verses 13 and 14, denies that. God, it says, no one taught him. There's no external source of justice and knowledge. Justice and knowledge are not concepts external to God by which he is measured or evaluated. Okay? There's nothing in back of God by way of justice, knowledge, love, go through the attributes. See? God is sovereign. There's no fate that controls God. So there's nothing in back of God's sovereignty. God is love. There's no concept of love and then God fits into that concept. There's no concept of truth. This is quite quite interesting. Truth doesn't exist as an abstract and then God happens to be true. Uh, and go through all the, we can go through the other attributes. But, but verse 14 basically says, Who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge? No one. The answer is clear. That means he is the source of those two nouns, justice and knowledge. Omniscience and holiness, we could say in our attribute list. He is the source of truth. He is the source of love. He is the source of every one of these things that we use to classify things with. What we're borrowing when we talk about universals and absolutes in which we're categorizing, what we're borrowing the moment we open our mouth or our brains work, hopefully both work together, that that is referring to God's attributes. We think of love, we think of justice, we think of these and we have a concept of them, but we have that concept only because God is first there. He's in back of the concept. We have the concept because of Him. Our concept of truth is a result of His character. It's not an abstraction. Now, if you catch on to what I'm saying, this is exactly opposite to the way the world works. Think about it for a moment. Let's take someone who says well, it really doesn't matter whether God exists or not. I can do my math. Really? If God doesn't exist, your math doesn't make any sense. It's just a mental activity of the cranium. It's not really anything there. So, we, we, it's not like we can be neutral about God's existence. Because if God isn't there, we have no attributes, we have no sources for these absolutes. 
These absolutes that the Greeks kept looking for, I mean, they turned over every stone philosophically they could turn over to find where are the absolutes because at least they had the sense, uh, more than we do in our generation, the Greeks at least had the sense that if you can't find the absolute, you don't have any knowledge because all is in a state of flux. You've got to have anchors, period. You've got to calibrate your knowledge by some standard. And where are you going to get the standard? So Aristotle was looking all over the place. Plato was looking all over the place. And they thought they'd discovered it. They thought they had an idea of the absolute. And then as man come on, matured philosophically, they realized, no, those categories are coming out of here. They're not out there. They're coming out of here. Well, if they're coming out of here, my, my head's just as good as yours. And what happens? We break down. Everything goes into relativism. And that's what we're seeing today. But the Christians who were believed in the Bible never had the problem of Aristotle and Plato and therefore don't have the problem of relativism because we didn't have to look under the rocks to find the concept. We knew all along Isaiah. We knew that God is the source of this. And because of our belief in God, we have the source of attributes. Now, this has a powerful effect. Let's further go on in Isaiah 40. This is all prelude to the doctrine of the Trinity. Let's go to verse 18. Now, this is a, uh, a question that God is asking to defy each one of us to classify him. Where is your concept, he says, by which you're going to measure me? Go ahead. To whom will you liken God? Or to what likeness will you compare him? That's what we do, right? When we say, oh, I don't believe the Christian God is righteous. I mean, he does those nasty things in the Old Testament. Oh, in other words, there's a standard of righteousness over here, and then we're taking God and plugging him into that standard. Where'd you get this from? And what he's saying is, there isn't anything out there. I am the source of this whole thing. Nothing else. And there's nothing that you can use to compare me. There's nothing you can use to measure me. Absolutely nothing. And then there's a mockery in verse 19 and 20. He's making fun of the idol makers of his time. They were making physical idols, but we could somehow say the same thing to our intellectual idol makers of our day. It's sarcasm directed to the philosophers of our time. As for the idol, a craftsman casts it. We would say the philosopher tries to think through this system. A goldsmith plates it with gold. A silversmith fashions chains of silver. Many men write books and they conceive of these ideas. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out him a skillful craftsman to pair an idol that will not tip over. And you know how they kept the idols from tipping over? They chained them down. And God says, look at this. Your idols need chains so they won't tip over. And you're trying to compare me to that? You're sick. That's what God basically is challenging the world. And then, of course, in verse 21, he's arguing that we intuitively knew better all along because he made us in what image? He made all men everywhere in his image. So he's saying in verse 21, all men are responsible not to think that way even if they haven't heard the gospel. They're still responsible for not thinking that way because of natural revelation since creation. Verse 21. God consciousness. So, to wind up so screwed up as a pagan is in his thinking, he has had to self-delude who? Himself. Paganism and unbelief is self-deception. Because verse 21 says, at the heart of it all, all men deep down do know after all. So therefore, if they profess they do not know, they have, they, they're not even true to themselves. 
Okay. Now, verse 25, another rejoinder. To whom will you liken me that I should be his equal, says God. In other words, do you have a concept that I, that will, that I am equal? In other words, that it comprehends me. That you can perfectly comprehend me? Tell me, what is it that you, by which you can comprehend me? So, so anyway, the point is, it goes on and on like this, and it goes, you know, it just goes on and on, all through Isaiah 41, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 43, all the Isaiah 40s, great, great section of Isaiah. All right, let's come back over now to the notes on the Trinity. That's the background. So when we get on these five depictions, and all these are is just a summation of Scripture. These five propositions summarize. God's own revelation of his nature. And if it is God who is telling us he is thus and such and thus and such, who are we to argue on the basis of our concept of number? Remember, Jehovah's Witnesses. Concept of number. God can't be one and God can't be three. That's a logical contradiction. Who's the source of logic? Who's the source of number? We'll discover that in a moment. Principle one, God is absolutely one. The point is that God is not made up of a menu, and I, as I put in the text, as I did back when we were studying creation, you'll see I parenthesized capital Q. Okay? And if you look on the next sentence, or the third sentence after Isaiah 40, 25, the sentence that begins, any such categories comprehended by man are qualities, and I put a parenthesis, little Q. Now, if you draw a line from those two, the little Q to the big Q, that's what my attempt symbolically to show what we're talking about on a creature level versus a creator level. So, the first sentence then, God is not made up of a menu of qualities such as righteousness, justice, omniscience, and love. The idea there is these aren't concepts. God is all of each of these. So, when we use the word Q for creator quality, we mean that he is righteousness. He is love. He is justice. He has each one of these things. He is all of them. He's not made up of, of uh, like a pie chart. That's what we're trying to get at. Any such categories comprehended by man are qualities, little q, that themselves derive from the creator. Then I give some illustrations. Our sense of geometry and space derive from what prior divine attribute? God fills, God is everywhere. That's the geometrical aspect of God's being that shows up to us as geometry. Where do we have a sense of space and location in space? We're located inside space at some point. Well, this feature of our existence comes about because God is omnipresent. He is immense. He is omnipresent. So he's created us and he's created the world having this finite characteristic we call geometry, but it's a finite version of his omnipresence. You can say the same thing for our sense of time derives from his eternality. We are finite creatures. We can't, we can't plug in to time absolutely. If we did, we'd be eternal. We'd see all points in space, all points in time simultaneously. God does because he's eternal. So our sense of time, what I'm trying to show in those sentences is the tools of reasoning that we use, like space, 
time, righteousness, love. Think of all the abstract nouns. Okay, All the abstract nouns that we use as tools when we talk about ourselves, when we talk about other people, and so forth. What I'm trying to get across is that all of those tool words are derivatives of God's attributes. So when we're using the very tools and we're trying to turn around and say God is illogical, God is unrighteous, God, what we're doing is we've already borrowed from his character to accuse him of not forming to his character. We're using a concept of righteousness. Where do we get it from? God's character. Now we're saying he doesn't fit his own character. You see? All right. Our, our, his attributes are not impersonal ideals thought by men. They are qualities of his personal character. God is each one of these. So that's the first thing we have to decide about the Trinity. That God is absolutely one. He's not partitioned. So however we visualize the Trinity, we've got to say that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit aren't each one-third of God. Wrong. God is absolutely three. Now let's go to the second proposition. He's not one. He's not four. He's not eight. He's three. And he didn't become three when he created the universe. He was three before he created the universe. Now, in the quote I have, on bottom of page 10, you'll see a doctor, I'm quoting Dr. Poitras, a fascinating individual. He'd done a lot of pioneer work as a mathematician in this area. He was the one who wrote a very famous essay about 15 years ago that just blew the socks off a lot of people. And it's entitled, Is Mathematics Neutral? And he denied the fact that math is neutral and said 2 plus 2 equals 4 is a statement that does not mean the same thing to a Christian as it does to a non-Christian. The Christian and the non-Christian cannot agree that 2 plus 2 is 4. There are aspects and subtleties to that statement that are not shared between a believer and a non-believer. All right, so he says here, God has an aggregative nature. That is, he has distinctions in the sense that the various persons of the Godhead and his attributes are distinct from another. This is the eternal foundation for the science of set theory. This is how, when you define mathematics, you get into set theory and you distinguish clusters. And you say, is this a member of the set? Boom, 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 boom. So you're saying, it's not a member of this, it's a member of that. That's aggregative quality. And what Poitras is arguing is that that very aggregative quality that underlies set theory comes off of the Trinity. It's first, who was there first? The creator or the creature? What does set theory deal with? The creature. Who's first? The creator. Then the tools that we're using to deal with the creature come from the creator. So he's the source of the framework for set theory. This is eternal foundation of science of set theory. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Notice the word also. So the Father and the Son are distinguished. One is one. One is the other. The Father will give you another counselor. That word another distinguishes the Holy Spirit from the Son and from the Father. So they're distinguished somehow. The personal names Father, Son, and Spirit already imply that there are distinct aggregates within the Godhead. Okay, so that's the second proposition. God is three. Third one. This has a, a tremendous importance when we get later on, we deal with the issue of feminism and totalitarianism and every other thing. God's threeness refers to modes of being, not just roles. It's easy to see God's roles, right? 
God the Father planned the plan of salvation. God the Son carried out the plan of salvation. The Holy Spirit reveals the plan of salvation and applies it to us. Okay? Holy Spirit regenerates us. Holy Spirit illuminates our heart. What is He illuminating? The work of the Son. And the work of the Son, what's that? That's the work that the Father ordained the Son to do. So it's clear the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have roles, but the doctrine of the Trinity goes deeper than that. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have roles because they have prior being that characterizes them for those roles. It wasn't that, gee, the Holy Spirit could have done the plan of salvation and the Son could have revealed it. That's not true. Because of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they have, a, they have a structure and a being constitutively such that when they go to act the plan of salvation, it's the Father that does the planning, the Son that does the doing, and the Holy Spirit that does the applying. So the roles derive from their being. And that has to be in there. Otherwise, what you have is, remember when we were dealing with Christ, doctrine of Christ, then you have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit just masks. And then you have this unknown God and He shows up one time as the Father, He shows up the next time as the Son, shows up the next time as the Holy Spirit. Then you get the problem in the Garden of Gethsemane. Who was Jesus talking to? Himself? So, there are distinct attributes of God and it's being, not just the roles. Okay, item four. Another sticky one. This is really sticky. We're going to spend some more time later on after we get into the life of Christ on this one because this harps back to to have us understand more clearly terms and names that the Bible prefers to call the Trinity. If you'll follow uh, my thinking there and then we'll we'll go to Genesis 22 in a minute. Although the Son is begotten from the Father and the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son, this subordination within the Trinity does not diminish the essence of either the Son or the Spirit. Here's what I mean. Because the Holy Spirit is carrying out the work of the Son according to the plan of the Father, doesn't mean the Holy Spirit in His sovereignty is less sovereign than the Father and the Son. They all are sovereign. The Holy Spirit's sovereignty isn't weaker, the Son's stronger, and the Father's sovereignty is stronger. That's not what we're saying. We're saying they're all equal. They all are omnipotent. It doesn't mean the Father's more strong than the Son. And so he said, okay, Son, you do this. I'm on on a totem pole. I'm higher. And because I'm higher uh, and you're weaker, you have to do what I tell you to do. That's not the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity says subordination does not refer to essence. Subordination is another aspect to their character, but it's not because one is less than God. They are not three degrees of God. But what then do these terms mean? Let's take the two terms. The Son is begotten. The Holy Spirit proceedeth. Those words came out of Scripture. So let's turn to Genesis 22. Here's where, as we always say, the first time something happens in the Scripture, always pay very careful attention to it. Because remember, God sets up history pedagogically so that there's lesson one, lesson two, lesson three, lesson four, lesson five, and so on. What you're seeing today, by the way, uh, with the NATO going into Yugoslavia, uh, it just struck me um, as I thought about this. Here's what's happening in our present day history. We are seeing national, nation states being disciplined by a supranational body. 
Now, it hasn't come into total fruition yet. NATO is still kind of a cluster of nations. But what you're seeing here is a very interesting thing. The world, quote-unquote, has decided there is evil inside a national entity. And therefore, they consider themselves legally justified in dealing with an ethical problem inside a sovereign territory that hasn't invaded anyone. Hasn't invaded anyone. And if you think about it, in the future when Jesus Christ rules the millennial kingdom, what does it say he has? A rod of iron. And he rules the nations. So when Jesus Christ comes to this world for a thousand years of reign and he sees something happening, what that means is he's going to get very nasty. The rod of iron, that's not grace, that's law. And he will enforce it. So I think what you see here is a development, and I'm not justifying one way or the other the thing, I'm just saying that if you look at history, it's pedagogical. I mean, 300 years ago, people wouldn't understand that. But slowly, ever, almost imperceptibly, right in front of our, our lifetimes, the last 50 years, we're seeing more and more the emphasis on globalism, more and more the emphasis on a world entity that somehow can judge individual nation-states. And it's a developing awareness of consciousness. Nobody knows why it's happening. Of course, we, we know why it's happening. It's a prelude, I believe, to the return of Jesus Christ. Because he's got to pedagogically deal with a human race so that corporately we appreciate globalism and global authority. The problem is, in a sinful world, global authority is illegitimate. That's Nimrod. The first United Nations building was the Tower of Babel. And you know what God did to that. Babel them. Fractured it. Destroyed it. Because why? Because sinful man can't be trusted with a global supranational authority. You can't trust man with that. Man has fallen. But when the Son of Man comes, who has not fallen, now he can rule the nations with a rod of iron, and he will. But he's qualified to do that. There's no ethical problem with that. It's not like what we've got today of a commander-in-chief ordering soldiers into battle to do what he was chickened out and too cowardly to do while he was a college student. But in, in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to have a person who nobody can, can but. Well, you weren't... Oh, yes, I was. Well, you didn't submit... Oh, yes, I did. No arguments. And see, that's what makes him so powerful. He's perfectly qualified for the job. There will be no arguments about the qualifications of the Lord Jesus Christ's leadership for world government. So, what we are seeing then is that the Lord Jesus Christ, in his second advent, history is pedagogically leading the consciousness so we can understand it when it happens. Well, now back in Genesis 22, again it was pedagogical. No, nowhere in, in history from Adam forward through Noah until we got to this case in Abraham's day was this term ever used. Now, you all know the story of Genesis 22. The horrifying story of being told to go out and kill your son, slit his throat, and put him on an altar. Now, just think of the... What, and God's telling you to do this. So, God is defining, redefining murder for you in this case. He's saying, I say it's all right to murder your son. Interesting. 
Kierkegaard and other philosophers said, ah, this is the horns of a dilemma and he, Abraham had to choose and that whether Abraham chose to obey or disobey had no ethical meaning, whatever. He could have done either one, just flipped the dice. Because on the one hand, God is telling him to do something on the other hand, it's clearly wrong. So what does he go by? Well, that's in Scripture, we know who's to go by. This awful thing God tells this man to do and then, if you'll notice... He'll st- he says in Genesis 22.2, Take your son, your only begotten son. That's where the term first begins in Scripture. In verse 22, uh, in Genesis 22, verse 12, I mean, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad, do nothing, for I know that you fear me, since you have not withhold your son, your only begotten son. Okay? That's the first time it occurs in Scripture. Now, let's reflect for a moment. If Jesus Christ is called the only begotten Son of the Father, and we go back to this text and take this text in context, what do we know about the term only begotten Son? What does this story tell us? What's the meaning of that? Is, is the meaning what the Jehovah's Witnesses and skeptics like to say, well, uh, only begotten Son means God begat the Son. But what's the irony if you know Genesis 22? Who begat Isaac? It was by a miracle, wasn't it? Yeah, Abraham was involved, but the point was, the issue here isn't the only begotten Son. The issue, because he was miraculously begotten, wasn't naturally born. The emphasis in the term only begotten isn't on the begotten. What is the emphasis? He had another son that wasn't begotten. Who was that? Ishmael. He had another son. Why does God use this term of Isaac and not of Ishmael? Now, yeah, he was involved in Ishmael too, begetting him. But why does he say the only begotten son here? See, the term is used in a peculiar way and if you catch it, it saves you from this stupidity thing later on by saying, begotten means made. Remember the Nicene Creed? What do we say? What were the fathers saying? Begotten, not made. They understood that the term begotten didn't refer to generation physically because Ishmael was generated physically. But the term only begotten doesn't refer to just generation or it could have been used of Ishmael. Why is this term coined only of Isaac? What was Isaac in the plan of God? He was, what? The seed. He was the elect, sovereignly chosen seed. And finally, Abraham realized it. He was the seed of the promise. He was the one that God had said, you're going to have a son and so on and so forth and the line of redemption is going to come through you, Abraham. Well, now... This boy exists in history. Ishmael is out of the way. Isaac has the floor. Isaac is the center of the drama. And history starts marching on. Now we come all of a sudden, bam, to to Genesis 22. And now, of all the horrible things a father would be asked to do is kill his son. What is the term, do you feel about this term? Um, usually we don't talk about feelings here, but the, the revelation has power in the drama of the story. What do you feel when you read verse 2? Take your son, your only begotten son. 
In other words, take him, not Ishmael, not anybody else. Take your only begotten son. So, it's that son that is endeared to his dad because his dad has a relationship with the Lord and it's Isaac that is connected to that relationship with the Lord. It refers to a closeness and an affection and a linking to his sovereign plan, of God's sovereign plan. So, begotten, if you take the flavor of the first occurrence in history, Genesis 22, you clearly see it's not referring in emphasis to physical generation. It's referring to something else. It's referring to the place Isaac has in the plan of God, his endearment to his father. So, when that term is then picked up out of the pages of Genesis 22 and brought down over here and applied to Jesus Christ, it's applied with the knowledge of Genesis 22 story. That's why knowing the Old Testament is so important to know the New. The New Testament authors, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, coined the term, the only begotten of the Father. They coined it out of Genesis 22 story. And they did so in order to reveal mysteriously, we don't know how this happens, but the Holy Spirit seems to want to tell us that Jesus Christ means that much to the Father. And if you think that it was a horrible thing for Abraham to be told to slice his son's throat, that anguish of a father in that situation, then that's a revelation of what God the Father experienced when he looked down and saw the cross. Now, all of a sudden, see, now we're getting into, his God just sits up there with a total, totally unfeeling, you know, not totally disconnected from history, never gets his feet wet, no emotional link with man. Oh, yeah? Why is Jesus Christ called his only begotten Son for? See that revelation? That revelation, anchored through Genesis 22, reveals something, not about Jesus being created, it reveals something about Jesus' relationship to the Father and what the Father thinks of the Son. That's what it's talking about. Now, the same thing happens if you look at the term uh, following the same paragraph. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Well, where does that occur? That occurs in the New Testament, doesn't it? When does, when does, uh, when does uh, Jesus say, uh, if I go, I prepare a place for you, you know that passage, the upper room discourse there, and then he says, and I will what? Send another comforter to you. I will, he will proceed from me. Why does the Holy Spirit, why, why was he given when he proceeds from heaven after the Son leaves? What does he do? He replaces the Son in history. He starts regenerating. He starts illuminating hearts. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So, what does proceed mean? Does it mean he's weak? Does it mean he's the errand boy for the Trinity? No. It means that he is doing the work of God close, close in. He's the guy that builds all this stuff. You know, we've got a drama here going. This is a great illustration of the roles. All the technicians that had to, to put all this up, eh? that's akin to the Holy Spirit. 
the actors would be akin to the sun because they are the ones out here and we see them. A good play, you kind of notice the scenery, but you're not fixated on it because you're fixated on the actors and actresses. And then behind the actors and actors, what are they doing? They're following a script. And who wrote the script? The playwright, Dennis. So there's a kind of a practical illustration of these roles and how they interplay. So proceedeth means he's sent to do a job. He's the guy that does the work here. Okay, now the fifth and last part of the doctrine of the Trinity. With respect to salvation of man, the triunity is perceived with both threeness and oneness. The workings of the Trinity in the plan of salvation revealed to man show both threeness and oneness. That's, I mean, obviously, if God is three and one, then his plan is three and one. Now, I don't know whether I gave you the last, ver- the last part of the sentence that got cut off at the bottom of page 11, but let me give it to you. It's a quote from Leon Morris. Leon Morris has written one of the finest commentaries in the Gospel of John. And uh, unfortunately, my word processor skipped the little orphan thing and the software skipped and made it to 12. And then when I started doing 12, it put it back on 11. Um, he means generally that since God dwells, since God dwells in inaccessible light, comma, Since God dwells in inaccessible light, comma, he cannot be known, he cannot be known except in Christ, his living image. Except in Christ, his living image. What Dr. Morris is pointing to there is that we seem to have a conflict. Turn to John 1.18. You know, they say the Apostle John was the youngest of the disciples, youngest of the apostles, and he was the most intimate to Jesus in the Gospel narratives. And scholars have noted something interesting about John. In that passage in John 3, we all know God so loved the world, gave his only begotten Son. If you never noticed, it starts out with Jesus talking to Nicodemus. Here's an exercise for you to try someday. Read that chapter in John 3 and tell me, or tell yourself, where does Jesus stop talking? Because the chapter winds up with John talking, the author. And scholars have tried, you know, where does, where, how does that transition happen? And it's one of those examples, many of them, in the Gospel of John, where John's vocabulary and mode of expressions seems to be how Jesus probably talked. What we hear of Jesus through Matthew, Mark, and Luke is how they reported him to be speaking. But how Jesus shows up in the Gospel of John appears to be almost the way John is. So he was an impressionable young man. And how Christ taught his accent, his way of expression, somehow set John up for the rest of his life. Well, John, being so close, has the greatest insight about the Trinity of anyone in the New Testament. He was so close to the Lord Jesus Christ that when the Holy Spirit cleared his mind to write Scripture... What a gold mine he, he, he dug out of John's experiences. And in John 1.18, John makes this statement. 
No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained. And by the way, there's a, another little controversial text. Now, the translation I have is a very a legitimate translation. No man has seen God at any time, comma, not the only begotten of God, but it can read the only begotten God. Now, if that's proper, then there's another one of the verses that claim the full deity of Christ. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has exegeted or revealed Him, explained Him. Now, people read the first clause in verse 18 and say, Ah, conflict in the Bible. Because I can go over to Exodus 24 and Moses asked to see God and God walked by Moses and Moses saw God. And boy, when John 1.18 says, No man has seen any God any time. So that's why you Christians are always talking about your Bible. And the Bible is not rationally consistent. It has contradictory passages in it. Well now, as the old saying goes, let's just slow down and see carefully what John is saying here. No man has seen God at any time. Okay, so that, that's, the, that's the problem clause. So what do you do if you have a problem clause in the Scripture? Where do you go for help? First place, context. So let's just read a little bit further to see if possibly John might have explained himself. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him or exegeted Him or revealed Him. Now connect that clause with the first one. If, if what John is saying in verse 18 at the end, he's trying to say that the Lord Jesus Christ fully, completely reveals God. Now if that's his thrust and he's, he's trying to work his passage to prove that point, then you've got to interpret the first clause in verse 18 to fit that. So what is the first clause of verse 18? How would you understand that first clause in verse 18? No man has seen God any time. It means see in what sense? See him in Moses in a sense of a theophany? No, no. John means more than that. See deep into the very character and nature of God, like Jesus has explained to him. That's what he's talking about. See so far into God that you can see his triune nature. Moses didn't see that clearly. So that's what Dr. Morris is saying in this big long quote on the bottom of my notes on page 11. What Dr. Morris is trying to say is that John is simply arguing that Jesus Christ is the complete revelation of God and more complete than any other revelation in all of the scriptures. Okay, now let's go to um, page 12 of the notes. We'll finish this section on the Trinity. And then I want to just start with an introduction to the illustration. We'll get finished that up next, not next week. Am I right now? Plays next week. Yes, okay. I mean, it keeps getting bigger here, so if it isn't next week, we'll be sitting out there. <laughs> okay. The Son is the center of all revelation, whether he's the angel of Jehovah in the Old Testament or Jesus Christ in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit is never seen directly. He shows up in emblematic form, dove, fire, but you don't see the Holy Spirit. Ever see Him. The Son, you see. Poitras then explains it this way. 
The threeness alternates with the oneness. The incomprehensibility of God's aggregative nature is expressed by facts such as the mutual indwelling of members of the Trinity and the interpenetration of attributes. John 14. Let's turn to John 14.10. What he's saying here is that after we distinguish the Father from the Son and the Son from the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit from the Father, then you have verses like this. John 14.10 Do you believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? That's what he means by interpenetration. So wherever the Father is, the Son is. You can't isolate him either. If you have the Son, you have the Father. If you have the Father, you have the Son. If you have the Holy Spirit, you have the Father. If you have the Son, you have the Holy Spirit. They, they're all interpenetrating. You can't separate them out. So you can distinguish them, but still, after we said we distinguish them, that's still we haven't finished our understanding. We still don't know what we're talking about because they, they're interpenetrating. The Trinity doctrine cannot be stated as a comprehensively clear concept because of man's finiteness and its limitations on attaining the godlike universal categories Aristotle and other pagan thinkers required for their autonomous logic but never found. Biblical logic, on the other hand, by recognizing its creature limitation, knows that it has a firm foundation in God's triune nature. And we'll go into that when we talk about the applications of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, the section that runs from uh, page 12 down through page 13 through the top of page 14 is an illustration of the Trinity devised by the president of Gordon-Conwell Seminary back in the 30s and 40s. And it's one of the most intriguing illustrations of the Trinity I've ever seen. Dr. Wood points to the triune nature of the cosmos. And I think it's a, it's a fantastic illustration. And I think it truly shows something that God's triune nature marks itself in indelible ink in our nature, our very character and our being. The whole structure of the universe is triune. So if you could look at that, then what we're going to do is we're going to take the practical implications of the Trinity doctrine. Because I want you to see after all is said and done, the doctrine of Trinity makes a powerful difference. If you get sloppy and weak in the area of the Trinity, there's certain implications that follow. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We're thankful that you have given us the Scripture. We thank you that salvation has come through an awful price which we can't comprehend. But by looking at the story of Genesis 22, we can have an analogy. We know that whatever it was, that you felt when the Son carried our sins upon himself on Calvary, that that sense that you had is somehow parallel to our human anguish when we see Abraham and his son Isaac. We thank you through Christ. Amen. Attributes, all the, those tool ideas like threeness, oneness, um, logical consistency, that you realize that those themselves are but reflections on the creature plane of his, sovereign, of his attributes, of his divine nature. And uh, that, that has revolutionary implications. It has revolutionary implications about how you look at logic, how you look at experience, how you think.
because we've heard the, 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 one of the um, one of the hallmarks of Reformation thinking was a phrase that they loved to use. Puritans loved to use this one: "Thinking God's thoughts after Him." And what they meant was that's the preoccupation of man to think God's thoughts after Him. And it always irks me when I hear some secular historian mouth off about, well, man didn't really begin to think until the age of the Enlightenment or something. And, I mean, come on, give me a break. What did the church do, thinking about the Trinity? You talk about straining the brain. They went through four centuries of brain strain just trying to state it. So they were thinking long before the Enlightenment people came about. So don't buy into that. That's an easy thing to suck up and say, oh, gee, yeah, oh, no. They were amateurs. The Enlightenment was an amateur game compared to the kind of depth of thought that the church fathers were working on this stuff here. And just imagine what the disciples, I mean, you know, without any doctoral training, how did they ever write the New Testament? You know, really, not a university class among them. And these poor, everyday people just somehow coined scripture, wrote this thing that no PhD has been able to fathom since. How'd that happen? So, it just, it just, it, it kind of sets us on our behinds and think, well, okay, um, I can't quite be so arrogant as to, to start putting God in some box of man's creation. Because what I'm doing intellectually is exactly what in the Old Testament, um, in the ancient histor- history time, that uh, people were doing physically with their idols. And you just go back to Isaiah 40. Who are you going to liken me to? That I should be as equal. And that's what you're doing when you fit God inside of a concept. You have to let the concept flow out of God. And that sounds so opposite to what we learn. What we're saying in essence is that God precedes truth, logically. You can't have truth unless you have God with an immutability built into his character. Because if God doesn't have immutability built into his character, all is flux, and you have no such thing as truth. So truth depends for its existence upon the existence of God. And that's why I personally am a very convinced presuppositionalist in my apologetic, because I can't see how you can construct an argument that sits out there using man's categories and then from that platform try to prove Christianity. I think rather that Christianity alone provides the tools that I would have to use in any proof. So if God isn't there, then I don't have any tools for proving anything, leave alone proving that he exists. And that, I think, reflects the scripture because the scriptures don't offer any proof that he exists. The implication being there is none for the simple reason that proof itself is derivative of God. And be aware of something else. People will often argue... um, uh, as Michael Martin has done at Princeton, his claim is that he's tried to, he's tried to answer this, this thing that I'm just telling you. And here's Michael Martin's an- answer. He's an atheist now. He's a, probably one of the leading atheists in America. Michael Martin argues that if logic is dependent on God, then logic is contingent. That is, it can be changed. It can be flexible and arbitrary. And if that's the case and then there can be no truth. There can be no knowledge. So he's arguing that the non-existence of God is a precondition for knowledge, not the existence of God. But think about what Martin has said. 
Think of his first statement. He said that if logic is dependent upon God, it's contingent, meaning it, it, it could fluctuate. If God wanted squares to be circles, he could change squares to circles. So logic um, is, is, totally in, is, is totally a function of his arbitrary will. But now, wait a minute. See, here's where he runs while he reads. If you look carefully in Scripture, what does it say that God cannot do? He cannot change and he cannot lie. There are things he cannot do. Now, does that violate his omnipotence? It does only if you have a concept of omnipotence at odds with Scripture. See, this is why you can't just load these words up with some arbitrary meaning and then, oh, I've got to contradict. Wait a minute. Hold it here. How did, what, what kind of meaning did you pour into the word before you started saying you had a conflict? And what Michael Martin has done is he said, he's recognized that if logic is dependent on God, we've got to answer here. But you see, his atheism betrays him because as an atheist, as a non-Christian, he's fearful of God. I mean, without being saved, you should be fearful of God. If you comprehend who he is and you're not saved, you ought to be very fearful. And I think every person would ne- is intuitively fearful. Um, so he's fearful that if everything depends on God, then it doesn't depend on me. And if it doesn't depend on me or man, we don't have the final say in all this, and that's a threat. That's very deeply and profoundly threatening if, if I'm trying to build me and my walls, and I want to have self-sufficiency. You couldn't offer me a more threatening proposition than to argue that the very tool I'm using, logic, is is out of my control. So Michael Martin's desperately trying, he's threatened by God having control of the logic. But then he falsely infers that if God has control of all the logic, he can do with it anything he wants to do. And he could tear it up. No, that's not true. Why? Because God has an essence that includes immutability part of God's nature that Michael Martin doesn't understand, that the Bible is revealing to us, is that God has substantive character. And it's his substantive, trustworthy character that keeps him from being arbitrary. God is not arbitrary. Now, it's true, if he were omnipotent and had no moral, ethical character, he could do what he wanted. You know, a 900-pound gorilla does what he wants to. And God could do what he wants to. But... He does what he wants to, compatible with his essence. And he cannot lie. And he cannot change. And so therefore, that's the ground. It's, conver- it's exactly opposite. And this is what's so neat. Remember I, I said a couple of uh, weeks back, because there were some young people sitting right out here that night, uh, one of whom goes to a, a local Christian college and is so fed up with the non-Christianity she's getting that she's going to a secular college where she can relax. Um, and get it, by the way, cheaper. And so the point is that you, you look, if you want to understand unbelief, go to the Michael Martins of this world. You can learn it so wonderfully from a really good atheist, not some half-baked Christian evangelical who's trying to show how intelligent they are with you know, how many people they can quote. Go to the atheists themselves, and you will sooner or later, if you trust the Lord and search the Scriptures, they'll trip all over themselves and spill the beans right in front of you. And Michael Martin has done that. He has betrayed his heart. And the heart of Michael Martin's atheism is, I don't want logic 
to be out of my self-determination sphere. That is a threat to me. And I see that if I allow the God of Christianity to have the final say, then He can do with anything as He pleases, including me. Yeah, Mike, that's right. Wake up. He, he hasn't got a biblical image of God. So he, he's arguing G-O-D. He's got the vocabulary, okay. He, he, you know, he's talking English. So he's got the vocabulary. The problem is, he's, he's poured meaning into the word that isn't biblical. And that's why he's coming out. He's, his logic machine's sitting there cranking out conclusions. The problem is, the logic machine was loaded with words that had been sucked up, uh, that had sucked up non-Christian meanings. So that's the problem. Now, he comes back to us and says, well, you can't logically reconcile God as one and three. Well, we can't. We cannot totally understand that. But we have the data that shows he has a threeness and he has a oneness. I don't know how it fits together, but I know enough about Scripture to know I don't know how holiness, sovereignty, and human responsibility fit together either. But I know that the Bible confesses all of that to me. And I know that's the nature of God. So, you know, I salute and say, yes, sir, and roll on. Any, any other uh, questions anybody have tonight? Okay. Um, we'll meet in two weeks. <laughs>